Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel talking to Paul Tenorio as always. Paul, how's it going today, man? I'm just really happy today because Miguel Almiron scored a pair of goals right now as we're talking in Newcastle's FA Cup match. And to celebrate one of those goals, he did his half of the Dragon Ball Z celebration in tribute to Joseph Martinez and the Torn ACL. And it confirms what we've long known, and that is that Miguel Almiron is the cutest player in professional soccer. Yeah, such such a cute little guy, that Miguel Amiron. Quite a player, too. That Newcastle tweeted out a photo of this, and they actually tagged Joseph Martinez in it, and it was simultaneously heartwarming and heartbreaking. Um, and we're going to talk more about Joseph and his injury and the implications for Atlanta United's 2020 season later on in the show, but we're going to start somewhere else. And fittingly, I think, for this podcast, we're going to start with MLS roster rules. So the league the league released the 2020 roster rules on Friday afternoon, little Friday news dump. And there were a couple of significant changes um, in those new roster rules that we hadn't heard about in the new CBA. Uh, and those are dealing with the transfers of players and the proceeds and how those are split between clubs and the league. So in the past, anytime a Anytime a team sold a non-homegrown player, they had to split the transfer fee, or loan fee for that matter, with the league. And that cut used to be 75% to the club, 25% to the league. That's changed. It's now 95 and 5. And how they can use those proceeds is now changed as well. In the past, teams used to be able to convert up to 750000 of a transfer or a loan fee that they received into general allocation money. That amount has now moved up to $1 million. So we went from 75-25 split to 95-5, k in GAM to $1 million. Uh, you know, these are relatively significant changes, and I think they fit into the broader narrative of MLS wanting to encourage its clubs to actually sell some more players. So... A pretty significant move there. It's not earth-shattering, but it is a step in the right direction. And for a league that, you know, talks a big game, it is uh, it is a move to sort of walk a little bit of the walk when it comes to sell- becoming a selling league. Yeah, and before we start to delve into the conversation about being a selling league and the steps we've seen the league take in this offseason and in the CBA and these roster rules, I do want to spell out a little bit more about the way that this breakdown of money works specifically the $1 million in general allocation money, because we get this question a lot on Twitter. It usually takes three or four tweets to explain it. So I'm going to do it here on the podcast because it's a little bit easier. And I think the thing, the most important thing to remember here is if you're selling a player who has needed discretionary funds to buy down their cap number, so if they are a designated player or a player whose number has been bought down by discretionary TAM, then before that breakdown of a million dollars of allocation money happens, the owner has to re- must, must recoup 100% of their discretionary spend before any of that money can be converted into general allocation money. And and so if we and, use an example and, of for like Miguel Almiron, okay, he was purchased for $8 million. Let's just call it eight for round numbers. Let's say he made on average $2 million per year over two years. That means he was about a million and a half per year over the max budget charge in two years. That's $3 million plus the $8 million of his transfer fee. So that's $11 million in discretionary spending for Arthur Blank that he recoups out of a transfer fee that 
wasn't this, but again, for the sake of round numbers, let's call it $20 million. So before there's any cut percentage that MLS is taking, taking the owner recoups that money. And so now instead of splitting 95.5 out of 20 million, it would be splitting, splitting 95.5 out of the 9 million that remains after an owner gets his cut of money. And then from that split, the team can take $1 million of general allocation money. Right. From that, from that 9 million, they can then convert a million or in the past 750 into GAM. And just to reiterate, this is only for non-homegrown players. For homegrown players, guys who are developed by MLS academies and then are later sold on, say a Tyler Adams or an Alfonso Davies, for instance, uh, teams get 100% of those profits. The the GAM breakdown is still the same for those. That applies to everyone in the league, but for homegrown players, teams get 100%, and that was a change, what, two, three years ago at this point? Um, so definitely, definitely some serious implications. So I kind of gave it the very, I guess, brief overview on why this, this would encourage teams to sell more. You have anything on that topic for us? Well, I think th- there is, Again, using Almirona as an example, there could be frustration from an owner. If you're selling a player, or if we, we bring it down even further, because it'll matter more if you're selling a player for $5 million, right? And let's say mm-hmm. you purchased that player for $2 million. So now you're talking about, rea- realistically, about $3 million in profit. Well, if you're splitting that with the league, and they're taking 25% of that $3 million, it starts to get a little bit tougher to stomach the idea of selling that player when your your profit margins are getting cut down and cut down, and then only 750000 of that can actually be employed to make your roster better outside of signing a designated player. You can use those extra funds uh, to, to sign a designated player or to put it, you must use them to put it put into the club and other soccer areas that are approved by the league, but... You can't use any of it besides the seven fifty to a million in your actual roster. So right. that's and by where the this way, changes. One quick note on that seven fifty to a million. That comes out of the fee. So that's that's like something that the owners have to pay for, essentially, to the league, if I'm remembering this correctly. I had it all clarified on Friday, but man, my mind is mush. Um can't remember oh, that's a damn thing. So they have to actually owners have to pay for that general allocation money out of the transfer fee. It's not like they just get seven hundred and fifty or a million in monopoly money, right? And they get to pocket however much profit they made in the transfer fee. No, that that game comes out of the profit. Correct. So this, what this does is it just says, okay, we're we're making more money in two different places, right? The 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 math gets a little bit easier to stomach if you're an owner because it's not always easy to replace a player that you sell for what you're getting back in that sale, and and that's always the debate that each team is going through when they're looking to sell a player. You know, what is the replacement cost of this player, and is what we're going right. to get in the transfer fee enough? to do that and and this makes that math a little bit better for the teams and i think it and thus it, it incentivizes them to sell more and i think most importantly for, from my perspective is mls still has not yet created a real marketplace for itself you know we see these one-off sales that happen and alfonso davies great for mls we just talked about Almiron scoring for newcastle awesome for mls those are anomalies, right? They're, Miguel Amiron is not yeah, going to be around in the league. They're, they're outliers. What matters more for, for European teams as they come looking for players are the, the, the sales that are happening at $2 million, $3 million, $5 million. And so 
MLS teams need to be willing to sell players for smaller prices with bigger sell-ons on the back end. And and I think this makes those deals a lot easier when you're pocketing yeah, I 95%. I mean, that's that's pretty simple, right? You don't need us to tell you that, listener, right? You get 20% more of the fee. You make It makes it easier for teams to sell. But one thing that I thought of when this was coming out that my mind immediately jumped to was Aaron Long, Paul. Um, obviously, I think you reported about it last summer, I guess it would have been, when West Ham first came sniffing around and the Red Bulls got some offers and ultimately they decided to hang on to Aaron Long, who they signed to a new deal just months before. Um, because, and this was, I believe their stated rationale was, you know, we might be getting two, three million for him, but we're not going to go out there and find a replacement, um, at Aaron Long's level for that price, particularly once the league takes its cut because he would have been a 75, 25 player. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe if this rolls around, what, eight, nine months ago, maybe Aaron Long's in the premier league right now. Um, that might be a little bit of a bitter pill for him to swallow, I imagine. Um, but that is kind of where my mind went with this. So it's 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 interesting, and it should help down the road. And we should note as well, this rule is effective January 1st, 2020. Uh, so anyone that was sold in January, so Kamara Lawrence, Tito Vialba, Leandro Gonzalez-Pirez, all of those guys were subject to the 95-5 split and not the 75-25. I do want to ask, though, Paul, like, is, the, is this enough? You know, we we talked a lot about a, a couple episodes when we were discussing the CBA about how, yeah, it's incremental progress, but this isn't really going to change the big picture. Um, is this enough for you in terms of MLS becoming more of a selling league? No, I think the the evidence, the thing that's going to be that's going to convince me that the league is serious is going to be the ledger in these transfer windows is going to be the balance between buying and selling. When I start to see multiple players being sold in a window for realistic prices, and I'm going to stop reading reports about teams turning down a $3 million offer and asking $9 million for a player with 20 MLS starts or something ridiculous like that. That's when I'll start to believe and think that it's enough from MLS, that they're doing enough to actually try to establish themselves as a selling league. And until that happens, I don't think any of the rule changes matter. That being said, what I think is important, Sam, is the evidence that we're seeing. These changes are being driven by ownership and by the league. So when you look at the pattern in this offseason of what's happening, there is a sign that that they are trying to get there. So you talk about the U22 initiative. You talk about 95 and 5 and the 1 million in GAM. And then I think we look at the hiring patterns of MLS teams. Hiring GMs like Zanota in Dallas and Heights in Chicago and Ernst Tanner in Philadelphia. General managers with a history in the international market for teams that have sold players for profit. That is not a coincidence. These these GMs are being hired uh, with the advice of MLS headquarters, with hiring um, people to to advise on these these hires who are pointing them in this direction, all of that is signs of being serious about wanting to be active in the international market. So alone, the ninety five and five isn't enough for me. But when you look at the collection of events that have happened over the last year or so, I think that there is there are indicators that they are serious about it. And let's wait and see the results. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Another one to throw in there is Kevin Thelwell, now with Red Bull, coming over from Wolves. You know, obviously he's experienced in the market. Dennis DeClosa, not really a selling club sort of GM in the past. He was with Chivas and then the Mexican Federation for a long, long time. But he's familiar with that world more so than a lot of guys uh, around the league are. So a couple of others. Vancouver as well. Um, You know, coming over from Schalke, I believe, uh, unless I'm misremembering that. Um, but yeah, so there, there's been a lot of changes in that front and I think it is sort of good steady progress. Um, but you, you sort of said it earlier, this is going to come down to the teams and their mentality and that's going to start to have to change. Um, and, and you mentioned maybe accepting lower fees and getting sell-ons because there is a little bit maybe of a, hmm, I don't want to say MLS players are being undervalued by foreign clubs because there's not a lot of proof out there that these guys can go over to different leagues um, and succeed. Um, but they're, the valuations aren't matching up, right? Um, and until they do, until MLS teams you know, get their players to a level that they think is acceptable, maybe they need to change their how they're looking at this and how they're approaching it. I think RSL, you know, if you want to say they took one for the team or they took one for the league, I guess more appropriately, with the Jefferson Saverino sale, you know, they sold him for $2 million. I believe they had a 40% sell on. Um, I think I should, I should check my own reporting on that one. I was the one that broke that story. Again, my mind is mush right now. Um, but they bought him for 2 million. And so it's not like they made a huge profit on him. They didn't make a profit on him at all, unless he gets sold on again in the future, uh, by Atletico Monero down in Brazil. So, you know, that's, that's going into that, that, mentality needing to change if MLS actually wants to become more of a selling league. And, you know, we've, we've been talking about this for 10 minutes now, and I think listeners of this podcast will know, but just in case they don't, Paul, can you just walk it, walk through why MLS actually wants to become more of a selling league? Relevance. That, that is why. And creating from a business side, it's creating a, a new revenue stream for the owners I mean, this is one of the biggest areas of revenue in global football, selling players. It's how small market teams survive. When you when you want to compete with the biggest clubs in the world, you have to find a way to generate revenue. And the path to do that is developing players and then selling them, finding players cheap and then selling them for big profits down the road. So MLS has ignored that essential part of the game the, the business of the game for such a long time. But I think it, it matters also for the soccer side. The the perception gap that exists between where MLS's quality of play is and where people think it is, is huge. And the only way to narrow that gap, it's not just going to be by playing your games on Sky Sports at 2 in the morning in England or, you know, in, in South America or anywhere else. Sure, you can get some eyeballs and people will see the games, but when Tyler Adams goes over and succeeds in the Bundesliga, steps right into a starting lineup and succeeds with, with Red Bull Leipzig, or when Alfonso Davies becomes one of the world's best left backs at Bayern Munich, or when Miguel Amiron comes in and, and produces for a bad Newcastle team, that's all advertisements for this league. And it's important to gain recognition within the rest of the the world of, of, of soccer. And it's how the prices on these players are eventually going to go up. And I know I'm talking a lot here, Sam, but I'm going to go on one more little rant about this. You know, rant when, away, I, my man. when I was in Salzburg 
it was really Ooh, interesting. When you were studying abroad in Austria? <laughs> when I was studying abroad in it Austria. Changed, it changed your life. Exactly. And what I what I saw was was amazing. When it, when I was speaking to people around the club at Salzburg, I was there to write a story about Jesse Marsh, but I was learning about the club there. And when Red Bull bought in in Salzburg, they changed the model completely of that club in addition to changing the name and the colors and the culture around the club. <laughs> Not without and controversy. It was very difficult for them to win fans back. And as they started, they they started off by trying to sign big names who were at the back end of their career. And they saw these short-term bumps, but nothing that was really sustainable to draw fans in. So they changed the model. They brought in Ralph Ragnick, and his idea was, we are going to become a selling club. We're going to play this high-pressing system, and we're going to find players and sell them. And they started to have success, and they sold their first few players who were the star players of the team. And the fans were obviously unhappy. I mean, why would you sell these players? We have a winning team. We're going to compete in Europe. And what happened was they took that money and they reinvested it into new players. And those players were even better because their prices were higher because they used that revenue to buy them. And then those players were sold. When I was there, they had sold something like three or four players in a row for eight-figure transfer fees. You know, They had established over the number of three or four or five years $5 million player, $6 million player, seven. They, were, they created a market that said, okay, you can find good players at Salzburg. So now those prices had gone up $10 million, $11 million. And then what happened? We've seen what happened in this window, right? Minamino goes to Liverpool. Haaland goes to Dortmund. That is the model, right? That is the model. And if you actually look, Salzburg is struggling a little bit right now. They sold three of their biggest stars in one window. It's, it's difficult to recover from that. Yeah, it looks the like model. they're going to have a hard time winning the league. Yeah, and I think... I think what you what what you have to recognize is there may be short term bumps for the long term health of the club. And similarly for MLS, you might not love selling some of your best young players, but in the long term, it's the right thing to do for the league's growth, both in the revenue it's bringing in and the attention it's gaining the prominence of the league within the global market. All of those things matter. And and interestingly enough, Sam, I, I'll, I'll cede to you at this point after I've talked for three minutes. You know, I think FC Dallas is probably going to be the most important club in this transition, how willing they are to do more Chris Richards-like deals and sell yeah. their academy players to show and then and then to win, right? To, to be able to sell these homegrown stars, reinvest the money well, and be competitive in MLS. Yeah, no, I think that's a good shout. And I would throw RSL maybe and Philly maybe into that group, but I think Dallas is kind of the leading contender there for sure. And and one thing just to kind of put a bow on what you said, you know, this ideally creates a virtuous cycle for MLS. So you sell players on, you get some money into the league, players from smaller European countries or South American countries or wh whatever countries start to view MLS as a legitimate springboard or trampoline to Europe, to big European leagues. Um, and they want to come to the league more and you have more money to go get them. And then the quality goes up and on and on and on and on. And it creates this nice little domino effect that should raise the profile and the quality and all of those other good things about MLS. Um, so, you know, that's how I tend to view it. It's a virtuous cycle here. And if MLS can get it right, the league could put itself in a really good spot to grow in the future. Um, so I think with that, unless you, you have anything else on, on this roster rules or, or selling league? No, I'm ready to, ready to, to move on to, uh, to the you're next ready to, You're ready for a quick break here for 
All right, let's do let's do a quick break. Before we move on, I want to take a moment, a quick moment, to tell you more about the great things going on at The Athletic. Paul and I obviously work for The Athletic. We're writing about MLS. We're writing about U.S. soccer. We're writing about some Canadian soccer as well. Obviously, the site covers everything you can imagine in American sports, Canadian sports, and in the U.K. with EPL and championship coverage, um, some European soccer mixed in as well. But we have a lot of good things going on. And I just wanted to take a second to highlight two of our colleagues, Paul, um, starting with Meg Linehan, uh, who does a fabulous job covering the NWSL and the U.S. women's national team for us on the soccer group. Um, And she did a really interesting, um, timely article with the first interview of Becky Sauerbrunn after her trade from the Utah Royals to the Portland Thorns, which was a, a major, major move in NWSL. So go ahead, take a few minutes out of your day, give that a read. I promise it's worth your time. Another colleague of ours is coming out with some excellent reporting and writing on Joseph Martinez. So that's Felipe Cardenas, who covers Atlanta United for us, does a good job covering them front to back, as well as some some of the other goings on around MLS. Um, so he's he's written, I think, already two pieces on Joseph, one of which I think is yet to be published, but will be pretty, pretty soon. Um, and he'll have a lot more in the future, which is a nice little segue into our next subject, Paul, uh, which is Joseph Martinez. Obviously, if you've made it this far, you probably know um, he tore his ACL on Saturday night in the season opener, Atlanta's season opener at Nashville SC um, on, you know, I almost hesitate to bring this up. But that field was terrible, man. I don't think that really had a ton to do with Joseph's injury, um, but I haven't really seen anyone point that out, and I just wanted to say it. That field at Nissan Stadium was bad. Hopefully they can get that fixed, not just for player safety, but for quality of the game, because that ball was moving all over the place on, on pretty routine, simple passes. Anyway, I digress. Joseph Martinez likely out for the season. Um, you know, ACLs are typically nine month minimum injuries. We usually don't see guys back to their best until 12 to 18 months after they suffer it. Uh, he's one of the best players in the entire league, one of the top scorers in the entire league over the last three years. And, you know, it shouldn't be uh, glossed over that he's maybe the biggest star in the league right now. There's no more Zlatan, no more Rooney, no more Schweinsteiger in MLS this year. And apart from Carlos Vela, Joseph Martinez, I guess Chicharito too, but Joseph Martinez was up there in terms of personality and what he meant both on the field and off the field to Atlanta United and to MLS as a whole. So to lose him is a, is a crushing blow for Atlanta and for the league. Uh, I'll be sad to not watch him play. But what does this mean for Atlanta moving forward? Tell me a little bit about that. How can they replace him? It's going to be, well, first of all, it's going to be impossible to replace Joseph Martinez. And I say that because it's more than just the goals. And he's scored a ton of goals. You know, I think about almost 80 goals in three seasons, which is an incredible strike rate. But his personality is is so critical to that team. The leadership that he provides with with that kind of, he, he's kind of that villain, right? Like the best villain in Atlanta since Deion Sanders. And he galvanizes that team. I don't think you can replace that. But then we get to the MLS rules, and it makes it very difficult to replace Joseph Martinez. And it centers around the idea of a season-ending replacement player. And there's a cap on the budget hit for Atlanta United at 250000 Now, luckily for Atlanta, they have another senior roster spot open, according to our work today, Sam, of going through their roster and trying to figure that out. It was but, mostly you. 
it was you know we 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 figured it out and and so <laughs> i i think that the the best that they can do is to look for a short term solution of somebody that can get them 15 to 20 goals and and at least try to yeah, replace sounds the percentage easy, right? of the production right yeah, just 15 I know to you've 20 got some goals thoughts. just come in for one season yeah i've got some guys in mind um you know that season ending injury designation i don't think it would help them out a ton you know it would open up the international spot and the senior roster spot like you mentioned so they could go out and make an additional signing on top of a joseph replacement in the summer um but there are some options i think within the league that if i was carlos bocanegra i would at least kick the tires on see how much it might take uh to to bring them into town and so i'm gonna throw a few names at you paul you ready you can you can swat them down you can take them and run whatever you want I'm ready to swat them down, and then I've got my my one name for the end Ooh. of this list. Okay. All right. So first on mine is Christian Ramirez, currently with the Houston Dynamo. He's not going to start at Amoro Minotas. He Houston might want to hang on to him just because if they want to sell Minotas in the summertime, uh, Ramirez is a ready-made starter replacement. Uh, he was obviously with Minnesota for a long time, joined Houston last year in a trade from LAFC, and notably... I should mention this. Uh, he was sort of in my Twitter mentions a little bit. Um, not to pull up his spot a little bit too much here, but people were suggesting uh, that, you know, maybe Miami or maybe Atlanta should take a look at him. And he was in there liking those tweets, which I was tagged on. So saw that. Um, I don't, what I'm trying to say is I don't think he would hate a trade to Atlanta at this point. So what do you think? Christian Ramirez? Yes or no? Who would hate a trade to be the starting striker for Atlanta United? I mean, come on. You'd have to be crazy. Yeah, that's fair. He, he makes sense. <laughs> he makes sense. And I think Atlanta would have enough allocation money. This is why it, it it's so terrible that allocation money isn't public because it limits our conversations about what teams can do on their roster to any MLS execs sure. listening. But, you know, he was on $666,000 of guaranteed compensation last year. Uh, I'm guessing his number is similar if, the, if it was an option that was triggered going into this season. So... Um, you know, they'd have to have probably, you know, four hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars of TAM or GAM to get that number down to a reasonable spot. I, you know, they've made it. They would also have to trade something for it. So, you know, I, I think he makes sense. I think he makes sense. He he would fit in decently well. He is a box finisher, not as good with the ball on his feet, but they have the players to to do that part of the game, right? To be the heavy lifters of carrying the ball forward, combining around the box, and he just needs to be there to finish. So I actually, I, I like that idea. Okay. I've got another one for you. Diego Rubio, Colorado Rapids. Didn't get the start. I believe he came off the bench in their win at DC United. Kai Kamara was the guy that, that led the line from the jump for them. What do you think, Diego Rubio? Another player who I think makes a little bit of sense with how he plays. I, I don't I don't see Colorado trading him though. I think they've they've done a nice job putting a roster together. I would think they would need something in return beyond money. And I you know, I, I just don't see that being an easier trade to to be able to flip. Whereas I could see Houston, you know, they have a coaching change. They, you know, uh, Tab Ramos is certainly trying to imprint the roster, they have a very, very low budget. I know Colorado does too. I think that trade is probably an easier one to navigate. Um, but I, I think stylistically, Diego Rubio could work. I agree with pretty much everything you just said. And I would add that it's never a bad idea to have an insurance policy for Kai Kamara. Um, I think that's important to note. Um, another one for you, CJ Sapong, Chicago Fire FC. How about that? I got it right. 
Um, I don't even believe he was in the 18 for the fire on Sunday at, uh, at Seattle. He was not in the 18. Um, you know, he scored double digit goals. He can play sort of on the wing. He did a lot of that last year in Chicago, but he's certainly a guy that has experience playing as a hold up forward too. Well, he's injured, which is why he was out of the 18, but I, I just don't see any way the fire could afford to trade CJ Sapong right now. They are so thin, paper thin. He's an American player. They're using up all their international spots to sign guys from abroad. He's on a good number, a decent number. He produced last year. He can play on the wing. He can play up top. They have nobody else. If if they traded him and Robert Barrich got hurt, they would have – I don't even know what they would do. I think probably like Elliot Collier would start up top or something. I, I just – would I would my mind would explode if Chicago traded CJ Sapong. So I I'm just gonna <laughs> nix that on the the idea that they are sane, somewhat sane in Chicago and wouldn't even think about it just because they are not deep enough to be thinking about trading anybody right now until they have replacements lined up. Okay, I have a little bit of we discussed those other three before this call. Spo- peeling back the curtain for you here, listeners. We have not discussed this one that I'm about to throw at you, and it's a little bit of chaos. I might be trolling you a little bit, maybe, but we don't need to talk about that. Uh, Dom Dwyer from Orlando. I mean, sure, if Atlanta wants Dom Dwyer, they should go get him. I mean, yes, okay, Dom would be like the personality fit, right? Like he's... He wants to be the villain that Joseph Martinez is. He hasn't produced. Would he produce in this system? I think so. He's a good finisher. His strike rate's actually not that bad when you look at the minutes he's played. But I think it would be difficult. His life is in Orlando. His wife is in Orlando and his kids. He has a no-trade clause. If you're Orlando City, you're certainly trying to move that number off the cap. I think it would be very difficult cap-wise for Atlanta to do it. It just doesn't line up on those levels. And I, I don't think it would be worth bringing Dom Dwyer into your locker room if you're Atlanta United. It would be tremendous content, though. I think we can all agree on that. Um, last one for you from in MLS. Um, this is a guy who a lot of people were high on uh, after, at the end, towards the end of last season, he had a really good run of games. Young player up in Minnesota, Mason Toy. He uh, is behind Luis Amaria, their new striker, and apparently behind Aaron Schoenfeld, who came in off the bench for Adrian Heath in their win at Portland on Sunday night. Mason Toy did not get any minutes in that match. So uh, that's an interesting one. Um, I don't know why Minnesota would do it, but, you know, if Atlanta it might be worth it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Mason Toy will play minutes for Minnesota this year. I think Schoenfeld was brought in to try to close out games that they're leading, and he did that effectively in Portland. Um, He's a young player, promising player. I think Minnesota would ask a lot for him, probably too much. Um, So that that would be the part that they'd have to navigate. I think, like, I think if you're going to talk about giving up a decent chunk of change, like I actually would trade for Dom Dwyer before I traded for Mason Toy because Dom's coming up on an expiring contract. You, you It gives you more freedom of, of movement. You're not tying yourself into anything. On the flip side, obviously, at Mason Toy, you could try to trade or sell. But I think, I think looking for those shorter-term solutions and proven productivity would be a better move. So I, I think – I mean, I know you, you might have thrown Dom Dwyer out of there out of the blue, but I think he actually – checks more of what Atlanta United needs in the replacement player than, than a younger player like Mason Toy. I mean, I, one, one last thing. I, I believe Orlando would have to keep a significant 
number or significant part of Dom Dwyer's salary because I, I want to say he's over the TAM threshold. Uh, Atlanta already uh, obviously have the three DPs, and, and Joseph being on the season-ending injury list, if that's the route they decide to go, would not change that. But yes, it is your turn. Okay, this is a name that you don't know. This is a surprise that I even have a name, right? So I think okay. the, the, the name right. that I would go – I'm just letting the listeners know that you're not prepared for this as I was not oh, prepared okay. for Don Dwyer. Right. That's all I'm saying. I thought you were saying I don't know this person. I no, might no. not. Who knows? You know them. You know them. The The name I would look at, the player I think fits and checks a lot of boxes is Danny Hooson in San Jose. He, he Interesting. A, he's a yeah. forward who's produced in this league when he was played as the number nine. Okay, He's Dutch. So big check mark there with Frank DeBoer. Oh, they have yeah, things that they yeah. can bond over. Okay, he's being played out of position <laughs> in San Jose. He's playing. On, he played on the wing in the opening game. He played only sixty six minutes. He's on a good number for cap flexibility around five hundred and fifty thousand last year. I don't know how much that went up this year, and his contract expires at the end of the season. So if San Jose is going to get something for Danny Hooson, they need to get it now. They need to get it in the summer window if they're going to sell him, or they need to get it via trade in MLS. It doesn't lock Atlanta in to anything because he's out of contract at the end of the year. And if this guy comes to Atlanta, he knows he can produce, right? He can he can score a lot of goals. His value yeah, is going to go service. way up. You know, you're going to get served. Yeah. So as a player and his agent, it would be a great move to, to up his value. And if you're Atlanta United, you could be talking about, hey, if he's producing – Let's try to get him locked up into a contract and try to move him within the league, right? Or we're going to have his rights and we can move him at the end of the season if he comes in and scores a bunch of goals. So I think Danny Houston would be the best fit just based on all of the where their contracts are, what the money looks like, what his situation is with his current club, and, and what Atlanta United needs as far as his forward who's shown he can score in MLS. So that that's my pick. Okay. I'm convinced. Carlos Bocanegra, pick up the phone, call San Jose, go get Danny Houston. Maybe ask about Wando. You know, see if he wants to go win an MLS Cup for you. Um, just kidding. He would never leave San Jose, I'm sure. Um, okay. So I think that covers it from an Atlanta perspective. We want to get into one more segment. This is something that we touched on in our prediction episode last week, uh, but betting MLS. So it's time for this week's Never Bet MLS. And I think I will certainly prove why. Um, you should never bet MLS, but we're not actually betting these games, so we can have a little fun. Paul, what is your pick, or picks, I should say, for this week? Yeah, it gets a lot harder to do this segment now that we're not doing futures that no one's going to hold over our head until the very end of the year, you know? <laughs> yeah, this when is you actually we're going to have some accountability. Games, you're like, oh boy. Um, <laughs> so I am, I'm going with an over-under, which I've, I think I've had more success when I've privately kind of watched to see if I would ever be able to kind of give advice in a column or something like that. I'm looking at the Atlanta Cincy game. The over under for that game is set at three and a half. Joseph Martinez out with a major injury. I think there's going to be a hangover for Atlanta. Cincy on the road in Atlanta should, and hopefully will play a low block, try to keep the score low. I think even if they lose three, nothing, it stays under three and a half. So I'm going Take the under Atlanta Cincy under three and a half. That's my bet for the week. Okay. Um, I would not take that under. If I had to take one, I would take the over. I think uh, I don't trust Cincy to not give up less than two or three goals. And I think Atlanta are going to concede one or two in that match too. So I think it gets to four, but that's not my pick. My pick is a little bit different, maybe a little bit surprising. It's crew plus 400 at the Sounders. 
Um, so that means, you know, you bet a hundred and if you win, you win 400 for those that are uninitiated. I don't necessarily think that the crew are going to go out and win this game. I don't think they're going to go out and lose it though. Uh, I like the performance that they put in in their first game against NYCFC. They were up a man for 87 minutes and they only won one nothing. So that's a little bit bizarre to say, but I liked what I saw from Lucas Zellerayan in his first game. He went out and he won them that match. Um, and I think they're actually going to probably be a little bit more comfortable playing against 11, particularly on the road in a situation where they're going to have more space uh, to exploit some gaps and, and to really get at the Sounders, who I don't think have looked particularly good so far. Um, Jordan Morris was great against the fire in his appearance off the bench. Um, so, so no, no shade to him, certainly. Um, but as a team, they haven't looked at their best. Gustav Svensson and Nico Lodero, I believe are set to come back to training here this week. Uh, whether or not they're able to start, that's a different question. Um, so if I had to pick a game, um, I'm taking the long odds and, uh, going for the big win with the crew at Seattle. I like it. You know, I, I like that you're you're taking the big shots here when you're giving gambling advice. That's right. Helping and just to be clear, money. like I'm not I'm not betting any of my own money on that game. So, you know, do so at your own peril. <laughs> I'm not responsible. I'm not responsible, Paul. Um, anyway, I think that's it for all for this episode of, of Allocation Disorder. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and if you have any questions, any comments, any concerns, please get at us on Twitter. Um, at Sam Stasekel, at Paul Tenorio, or at Allocation Disorder, uh, and hit us up. You know, maybe we'll even crack open the, the mailbag next time. Uh, until then, thanks so much for listening. This is Sam Stasekel, Paul Tenorio, both signing off. 